Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Patient Convert Podcast. I have my guest host with me today, that is Justin Knott. Hey, everybody. And a really special guest with me today, and that is Dr. Josh Luke. You guys may have heard of him either online or for his amazing keynote speaking, as he likes to call himself, what is an edutainer, is that right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. So that, that, that's a true term, too, because it's mostly entertainment, but you leave with education. You're like, wait, I got duped into learning something during that funny speech there. <laughs> well, that's great. Tell the audience a little bit about yourself and um, what you do. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me on the show. Uh, I listened to a handful of your shows. And I'm going to listen to more, and, and I'm really in, intrigued that you guys reached out to me uh, because I think there's um, a lot of commonalities between our audiences. I also host a podcast. It's called Spend Less on Healthcare with mm -hmm. Dr. Josh Luke. You can find that. Um, Which is excellent. I highly recommend it. Yes. Oh, yeah, thanks. And, and, and I changed the name recently. You might go, wait, I thought he was doing another podcast. It used to be called Dr. Luke's Waiting Room the healthcare authority podcast, but now it's called spend less on healthcare. And uh, let me just address that really quickly before I give you my background. Cause I think that begs a lot of questions. Um, I changed the name of my podcast because uh, what people have come to know me as in the last couple of years, since I left the hospital as a CEO for 10 years of hospitals is, is America's healthcare affordability authority. I've really been established a name for myself as pulling the curtain back on hospitals and insurers and pharma and saying, Hey guys, enough is enough. Hyperinflation's out of control. Uh, no American families can afford health care. No American businesses can afford health care anymore. It's their second largest expense. And so while people have come to know me for being that guy that's kind of banging the drum to say, hey, let's all pay attention to this. And there are ways to reduce your spending. I wanted to have my podcast show get straight to the point of the point of this show is we will teach you and your family how to spend less on healthcare. We'll give you one tip that takes less than 90 seconds on each show. Uh, they're turnkey tips that you can implement overnight. And then I'll talk to a guest for 15 or 20 minutes who's going to dig a little deeper on another tip that will help you and your family save. Um, so it's an exciting thing for me. So that's uh, why we have the new change in uh, our podcast name. It's now known as Spend Less on Healthcare. And it's on the Dash Radio Network at dashradio.com if you want to check it out. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a great topic because you're talking about creating affordable health care for businesses and individuals and families. But how did you kind of get into this role as a thought leader in the space? Um, and where did your journey really start in understanding this healthcare industry? Thanks so much. It's such a great question. And, and um, my journey has been um, non-traditional. I actually had two older brothers that were professional athletes. So in high school, you know, I, I dreamed of being a professional athlete as well. But I remember my senior year, I'm sitting there on the bench during my varsity basketball game, watching my teammates play going, you know, maybe God didn't bless me in the same manner. He blessed my brothers. Maybe I should have a backup plan for my career in case being a professional athlete doesn't work out. And so I set my sights on working in sports marketing. And I actually was blessed to Within just a year or so of being out of grad school, I had worked for like the four largest um, professional sporting organizations in the country, Major League Baseball, NBA Players Association, the NFL Players Association. I'd done events for, for almost all these guys, the PGA Tour. I worked for the Mighty Ducks of Anaheim before they changed their name to the Ducks. So I was living it. I was doing great. 
And then in 1998, three things happened to me that, that um, were really um, big. One is I got married. It's great. I've been with my wife more than 20 years now. Uh, number two, my brother made it to the major leagues finally with the Los oh, Angeles cool. Dodgers, my favorite team. And, uh, and at the same time, I was working in sports marketing, living my career dream. And Mark McGuire, who if you're not a millennial, you remember this. Um, yeah. Mark McGuire broke the longstanding single season yep. home run record. And his agent contacted my agency halfway through the year and hired us to handle his marketing, public relations, and promotions for the rest of the year. And, and everything just exploded in a good way, positively. But within about six months, because that happened literally at the same time I was getting married, I just approached my wife and said, hey, this has been amazing. What a great year. I'm representing one of the most famous athletes in the world. But I've just realized that I'm not in a career, on a career path where it's going to be fulfilling, where I have a social mission. And and I just asked my wife for her support and prayers and starting to think about what that might be because as much as I loved sports, I hadn't found the fulfillment in sports marketing that I thought I would when I realized I probably wasn't blessed to be a professional athlete. And so what happened over the next six to nine months is one of my students approached me at the university and said, hey, I've heard you. I was teaching a class. I said, hey, I've heard you talk about wanting a career change. I've heard you talk about the frustration with your grandmother's care that her caregivers don't seem to communicate with each other that she can't seem to afford basic things like a wheelchair and a walker and we actually have an opening at our nursing home for a director of marketing and admissions uh, that i think you'd be great for and so i went over and i applied for it and i got the job and i ended up being kind of demanding that if i take the job they put me into this administrator and training programs they could teach me how to be a healthcare leader and within a year i finished it uh, two years later, I became one of the youngest hospital CEOs in Southern California. So it's pretty cool. Longer story than you wanted, but that's the whole story. No, oh, that's but that's true. Story. I saw that you were um, hospital CEO at 32. Is that correct? Yeah, it was. And I learned a lot. I did a lot of listening, not much talking, you know, just trying to learn from my peers. But it, it was a blessing and, and really prepared me for um, so much of the, the work that I've been blessed to do since then. Oh, that's Yeah, that's amazing. So when you were working in these hospitals, that's where you kind of learned a little bit more about the healthcare process in today's healthcare industry. What stood out to you most um, with your work with these hospitals that you started thinking that there could be a better way to approach this? Yeah, that's nicely said. Um, So it's been almost 20 years since my first day as a hospital CEO. And uh, interestingly enough, my first day as a hospital CEO was my first day ever working in a hospital. Uh, I'd come from the nursing home sector. It was non-traditional. I had a lot of questions. I learned on the job. Some of those questions, almost 20 years later, I still haven't gotten a good answer to. Because uh, the healthcare delivery model in our country uh, and the way uh, insurance and everything was created way back in the day was that if you have a job and you have commercial benefits in this country, it just feels like an entitlement, something that's there for you that you shouldn't have to pay for. You turn 55, you get Medicare. It feels like an entitlement. So I know growing up in the 80s and, and 90s, my parents weren't thrilled anytime they had to pay for health care, but the expenses seemed to go up year over year back then, and, and it's never stopped. And it's been you know almost 40 years since then now. And we're seeing 5 to 6% increases year over year, every year, every year, every year. It's just like a broken record. And so something's not right. And people just kind of think, oh, it's healthcare. We just got to take it in the shorts and move on. Well, Americans can't do that anymore. There's one stat I'll share with you um, that my friend Dave Chase uh, always shares. And that is that uh, millennials can expect to pay more than 50% of their lifetime earnings to healthcare in America. Based wow, on that is an amazing statistic. 
Yeah, and Dave says it's actually much greater than that, but people don't believe it when you start to share with them that it's closer to 70%. But, but at the rate we're going, that's where the numbers go. And so I'll wrap up this answer by saying this. My kids are Gen Z. They're uh, high school and college right now. But in five to seven years, when they come to me and say, hey, Dad, this whole healthcare insurance thing, yeah, I, I'm just not interested in, in taking half my paycheck and paying for health insurance that I, A, may not need, and B, is part of a broken system. And, and as a father, in my generation, my dad would said, you're crazy, and, and that's not even a consideration, and you just got to do it. And in this generation, as a father, I'm going to look at my son and say, wow, son, you have lots of wisdom. I wouldn't do that either. And so it's gotten to the point that, you know, basic access to healthcare um, is no longer available at a reasonable price. Yeah, so I sure. decided just to pull the curtain back and start talking about things, not, not getting anybody in trouble or anything along those lines, just saying, hey, there are companies that are finding ways to reduce their healthcare spending, and there are families that have found many ways to reduce their healthcare spending. And uh, I, I produced something called um, 10 Tips to Spend Less on Healthcare. Your listeners can have it within 60 seconds from right now by doing something very simple. Text the word Josh, J-O-S-H, to 72,000. It's there that you go, guys. Text the word Josh to 72,000. I'll reply to you within seconds, and you'll opt in, and you'll get the list. And, uh, guys, these are turnkey simple things. They're not like, oh, you have to invest in this and research that and you know, move to a different city and, and get a different insurance. None of that stuff. These are 10 simple tips to start saving on healthcare. And it's, I'm hoping it ends up being my legacy because that's really what I'm trying to do here as I move forward. So with that said, I'm always really curious. I mean, we're, we started our own, own business probably younger than most do. Um, as entrepreneurs, it's one of the things I feel like, unless you've been in the business sector for a long time, like I said, we kind of jumped in with both feet very quickly. But Growing up, you're on your, your your parents' insurance, and then when you get a job out of school, you're on a company's insurance. You really don't factor that in almost as what a significant cost that it is, especially um, over the last 10 years. I mean, it is remarkably expensive to obviously cover your employees. So what are you with that kind of on both sides of the coin that small business companies can do to save as well as the family, you mentioned those 10 tips. If you had one that you think as a teaser really stands out as one sure. of the important things that you can sure. do. Sure. Some are so simple, like you'll feel embarrassed like I did when somebody teaches you about it <laughs> about a couple of years ago. So before I answer that, a little teaser here, um, Forbes a couple of years ago called me and said, hey, can you write a book? I was writing columns for them and for LinkedIn Healthcare, and they said, can you write a book teaching American businesses how to save money on healthcare? And my first response was, well, that's not my cup of tea. That's not my expertise. And they responded by saying, but man, we see how people respond to you on LinkedIn and on, on Forbes. We see your social media growth and following and the passion people show because of your honesty and your truth telling because you're pulling the curtain back. So I wrote a book that's available on Amazon. It actually went to Amazon bestseller on launch day. It's still, still there, still new, still recent, still very relevant. It's called Health Wealth, Is Healthcare Bankrupting Your Business? Nine Steps to Financial Recovery. So if you're a business owner and you want to learn to save uh, and, and, and reduce your second largest expense, which is healthcare benefits, check that book out. And what happened is so many of my friends and followers said, hey, Josh, this is a great book, but I don't own a business. Can you write one for me on how I can save? So I followed it up a year later with the book, also on Amazon, also hit number one, uh, thank, thankful to all the people who purchased it on launch day, called Health Wealth for You, 
That's straight to the point, isn't it? So it's called Health Wealth for You, 11 Steps to Save Big and Live Healthy. And I'm going to give you the one now that you guys asked for that is so easy. You're going to think it's silly if you didn't know it already. Many of you do. I actually overheard some folks yesterday at the coffee shop talking about it and how wonderful it was that I didn't even know. And they use GoodRx, G-O-O-D-R-X.com. Yeah. It's a website where if you type in your um, zip code and address, you type in the medication you need, and you type in your insurer, it will tell you within seconds how much it costs at each of the pharmacies in your neighborhood. It will also tell you if you want it delivered via mail within three days, it will cost this much less. And if you want to go um, get it delivered to your door today, it will cost you a little more, but we can deliver it. Take, take your choice. It's that easy. It's, a, it's called a transparency tool, folks, and we're starting to see more and more of them pop up in healthcare. They also have these transparency tools um, for surgery, for hospitals, for procedures. And so um, a lot of what you're going to see when you dig a little deeper with my 10 tips to, to start sp spend less on healthcare are transparency tools for different things and, and just using common sense, quite frankly. Right. It's not as complicated as people might think. I don't want it to be complicated because then people are like, oh, well, Josh made yeah, it sound it's never so easy happen. on the podcast. <laughs> you know, I, have to, I have to move three states over to save this much money. So we don't do any of that type of stuff. <laughs> well, that's good. Well, what do you think is the number one reason that healthcare is where it's at today? There's so many reasons for that, but um, the number one reason I think is the three of the largest lobbies in our country are big pharma, hospitals, and health insurers. And when they're aligned on something, which lately they have been, which is price transparency, they're, they're not fans of, um, then what they're doing is they're lining the pockets of your elected officials and my elected officials. And here's, here's a, a fact for you in this contentious political time. They're lining their pockets on both sides of the aisle, and they're the only uh, folks who have probably found a way to unify both sides of the aisle, okay? Because all of them need campaign funding, right? And so the irony of healthcare today, because you're, you're probably not answering your question historically, but more modern day answer, in this day and age, your elected official, nor mine, is going to be a champion for price transparency because they need the donations of those three large lobbies. And so everybody's kind of whispering, whether it's President Trump and even President Obama prior to that, they've used executive orders at a higher rate than any president's prior, particularly in healthcare, because it allows your elected official and mine to keep me happy and the donor happy at the same time by saying, oh, that wasn't me, it's president, you know? So... So there's a political play here going on that even though every single constituent in an elected officials market would say I overpay for health care, there's not a whole lot of elected officials that are quick to stand up and say, I'll lead the charge on price reduction and price transparency, which is why you've seen executive orders from the presidents for hospital price transparency, uh, pharmaceutical company price transparency, and hospital insurance rates. And uh, and those guys 10 years ago when I was a hospital CEO, if I would have revealed the rates with one I would have moved and I would have lost and it would have probably ended my career. Wow. Uh, now it's a requirement of new legislation via an executive order. And it's being fought. It's being fought tooth and nail by those three lobbies. What do you think with the state kind of just that you just spoke on, um, what effect is it having on, and I know we deal with it a lot because we work a lot in the private sector um, as well as the health system sector, but in the private sector, it's kind of squeezing doctors from all ends when you say, I mean, what do you think of this is having an effect as far as even care on a private practice level goes because they have to worry so much about 
compliance, your bottom line, but obviously you got into it for a Hippocratic oath and to take care of patients, but it seems like it's, 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 it's almost an impossible environment to survive in nowadays. You know, that's a great question. And folks, uh, this might surprise you to hear, but it's not a great time to be a physician in terms of um, income and revenue with the exception of one or two specialties because they're getting squeezed in so many directions. There's a chapter in, in each of my books called Direct Primary Care. This is the exception, and you may know it as something um, closer to kind of concierge medicine. That's how you originally medicine. heard about this years yeah. ago. Yeah, and, and direct primary care is kind of a modified, and look, there are some passionate people out there about DPC, um, but, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you to uh, tell you a little bit about it a little more clearly than they might because a lot of my friends that are DPC fans overdo it a little bit because they don't realize that not every direct primary care practice looks like theirs and everyone looks different from the other. And so what it is is it's, it's concierge medicine where you pay a fee each month for your family to have a right to go to this doctor. And um, you can walk in anytime. You don't need an appointment. The doctor's going to spend more time with you. The doctor is incentivized not to overutilize your care, which keeps your employer's costs down and your costs down. And let me give you an example of that. Uh, and, and I'm passionate about um, both DPC and the accompanying telehealth that comes with it. Because in uh, most DPC practices, they partner with the telehealth company. But what's changed since you used to call the nurse call line 10, 15 years ago with telehealth is telehealth is actually trying to help you not go to uh, the doctor, not go to the hospital, not go get a test, a lab, an x-ray that you don't need. And I've lived that. You know, in my books, I tell a story of a friend that I've now lived when I switched to cost sharing, which is a whole nother tip and chapter. <laughs> but where, when I'm in cost sharing, I have telehealth for free. If my daughter who's in high school wakes up and has a sore throat, rather than um, cancel half my day or my wife's day, um, not be able to take the other two kids to school, cancel work, cancel meetings, go sit at the doctor, wait to go to the pharmacy, none of that's happening anymore. What's happening now is we're going on telehealth on teledoc 10 minutes later for free. The doctor's asking a few questions, calling it directly into the, or you're not even calling in this day and age, just sending it to the pharmacy and he or she gets a response that says the medication will be ready in 15 minutes before they hang up with me. I'm told, go back to getting ready and having breakfast, pick the prescription up on the way to school, you'll be fine. Um, I, ha I have a saying, and I can't wait for somebody to request this speech someday, um, that millennials think Gen Xers are crazy when it comes to healthcare, and they might be right. And uh, I just explained to you why. Because so many of us are so hesitant to try telehealth. And it just saved you half a day of productivity, half a day of income, you never had to leave your home if you didn't want to. You didn't have to go sit in a German-fested waiting room at a doctor's office and have the doctor's assistant make you feel guilty that for squeezing you in at 11.30 before he or she leaves for lunch, even though they didn't have room for you. Oh, wait a minute. I thought you were my personal physician. I don't feel so swell right now. So anyway, guys, when millennials say, man, you guys are crazy to think telehealth isn't the answer. It's not the answer for everything, but it's certainly the answer for situations like I just described. So there's chapter on DPC in each of my books, chapter on telehealth. Um, both of those things are huge solutions. They're cost-friendly solutions. But the bottom line with all of these things, guys, if you go to a direct primary care practice, is the doctor and the teledoc doc are both 
trying to not send you for more care that you do not need, which is the complete opposite and gets back to your earlier question of when I was a hospital CEO, people were overutilizing and ordering extra tests and labs just to cover their rear ends. And that's one of the main drivers that made healthcare so expensive. There was no accountability for these unnecessary tests and exams that were being ordered. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because recently in the news, um, you've kind of come out as this quote unquote whistleblower for some of these hospitals. Now that couldn't have made you very popular with some of these hospitals. So can you explain a little bit about that story and exactly what you just talked about? Um, the healthcare organization inside hospitals and, and why you've been titled this whistleblower. Yeah. So the whistleblower thing is actually a fact, not so much a title. I, I was the CEO of four hospitals and at two of those organizations, I saw um, some things that I was uncomfortable with. So I, I reported them to the government. And when you do that, it stays under seal until it's done. And the government settled uh, with each of those organizations um, on my behalf and basically um, they paid their their fines and they're over now. And so that came out in the news. Um, it's not something I talk a ton about or promote about, but what I do do is when people request it, I have a, a breakout session when I keynote um, and I have a bunch of different keynotes. We can go through them in a few minutes. You know, my most common one through the years has been the health system of the future, teaching you how to prepare if you're in healthcare or if you are um, just a family member, a church, or even just uh, an organization who wants to learn how to best prepare for population health. Uh, my most common through the years um, keynote has been the health system of the future. But now I'm offering a, I offer a free breakout when you hire me to do your keynote. And, and one of those breakouts is there's two that I think would be of interest to your audience. And one is called selling to hospitals. I have an award-winning masterclass that I developed that teaches people who sell, whether you're in the staffing industry or uh, you sell supplies or, or um, anything along the, the lines that you're working with the hospital. If you're selling um, instruments, all those things that I'm teaching people how to sell to hospitals in a new era, teaching them a few boardroom secrets they didn't know. And that one, man, that one's really popular when I do it. I get a ton of follow-up. And the new one is, is called Whistleblower, you know, helping your staff uh, recognize, speak up, and uh, report fraudulent uh, behavior, um, theft, and noncompliance. And obviously, I'm going to share some of the experiences I had um, that, you know, they're, they're nerve wracking moments where you realize I could end my career by doing this, but, but it, at least I'll be able to sleep at night. And so the whistleblower thing, I mean, you can Google them if you want. Um, that, that's pretty much uh, the extent of what I want to share about it. Other than there were some pretty harrowing moments that I can share with you and your team. If you're an association leader or a business, I know I've gotten a lot of requests from uh, healthcare hospital associations to come share with us why you were a whistleblower, how it came about, what hospitals can do to prevent that from happening, but also in the financial sector where, you know, um, Sarbanes-Oxley and fraud and insider trading are such a big deal. They're required to have these annual compliance meetings as well. So I've gotten some requests there for that breakout. So that's kind of why that came out. So, you know, my goal is to be America's Healthcare Affordability Authority. And interestingly enough, uh, Justin and Kelly, I'll tell you, I've had a few uh, my mentors or colleagues say, are you sure you want to be known as a whistleblower? And I'm like, well, <laughs> it doesn't really matter if I want to be, does it? Because I am. Uh, what I want to be known as is America's Healthcare Affordability Authority. And I'm working hard to do that for families and individuals who have just said enough is enough. And folks, if I haven't said this yet, there are several multiple 
I don't even know how many other ways to say it, easy ways for you to spend less on healthcare. You don't have to keep taking in the shorts. We've been brainwashed to think that, oh, it's just expensive. It's part of the society. It's not. That's not the case. Again, if you don't, if you, if you want to just text Josh to 72,000, we'll get you those 10 tips. And the other thing that I have, Justin and Kelly, that I haven't mentioned is the 10th tip there is we ask you to answer 10 questions. I think it's 10 to 12 questions. And if you qualify, which I think 95% of people have qualified to date, if you qualify, it's called the personal healthcare spending reduction tool. Can you say that three times fast? All right. Personal healthcare spending reduction tool. After you answer those questions, we will email you and say, yes, in fact, you do qualify for our $5,000 guarantee. You'll, you'll I guarantee you save $5,000 in the first year um, if you implement these tactics. We, do, we charge $49 for that because uh, we, it costs us some resources to operate the website and for some of the people who contributed. If you don't want to spend the $49 to find out how, even though you've already answered the questions, we send you a, a coupon for $100 off and, and a guaranteed best rate with one of the cost sharing plans that we partner with as well on the website. So brand new, just released in 2020, already wildly popular. So it's pretty cool. And the best way to learn more about that tool is just to do the 10 tips on uh, spend less on healthcare. That's a great resource. So switching gears just a little bit, I know we talk about obviously marketing is a big focus on, um, on the podcast for a lot of listeners. Uh, I think they'd be interested to hear, because you've grown a, a massive platform, massive audience with what you're passionate about. I know a lot in this space, especially for doctors listening, they're struggling, I think, to kind of build their personal brand and to gain some autonomy if they're on a hospital system or even if they're in private practice and they're really trying to corner a market as a thought leader, reach more patients, leave a larger legacy um, than, than just their practice. As you've gone through this journey, Talk through kind of how you've built this platform and maybe a couple of tips that you found that have been really successful as you've gotten more speaking opportunities, you've built your social audience, you've built out your content that um, have really been helpful over the years if some of our listeners that are trying to do the same with their personal brand. Uh, yeah, good question. I'm going to answer it in two different ways because part of it is a question nobody's answered me and I realized I have a great, nobody's ever asked me and I have a great uh, answer for you and that's specific to physicians and their marketing. But first, let me answer your question for those listeners who just want to see social media growth. Um, LinkedIn's been good to me. Uh, because um, I was doing, uh, first of all, they asked me to write for their healthcare pulse and they would promote it. So I started to build a following. And then um, when they stopped promoting long form stories, they asked me if I would start doing video. And so I started doing daily video. I had something called the Health Wealth Daily Video Minute with Dr. Josh Luke. And I did that for about five months and people loved it. My following was growing. And then video started to grow and you started seeing a lot of people doing more video or daily video. And as I started to watch them, I said, this is a total waste of time. There's no content. It's just people that can pretend like they're famous doing daily video. Um, And LinkedIn, um, you know, they were fine with that. They saw the growth of Instagram and Facebook and video on everything else and said, we got to do the same. And their strategy was to get you to come back to LinkedIn multiple times a day. And, And I think if you think back to two years ago, people weren't doing that. They were touching, they were going once a week. If that once a month, yeah, I still, LinkedIn's yeah, for definitely sure. grown. Yeah. I use LinkedIn personally for my business as well, and it's yeah. definitely changing platform for sure because we're you know, our kids are teaching us how to use it too, right? They're on it all day long. <laughs> so let me answer. So so let me answer. If you want to become an influencer, which guys, I'm I'm not a huge fan of the influencer, which is why you don't see me doing um, as much of these things on LinkedIn as I used to. I don't do daily video. I'm not trying to grow my following. My following are people 
that look at them as subscribers. That's the best advice I can give you. A lot of my friends are these millennial influencers that have 200, 300, 400,000 followers, but they don't make any money. And it's crazy that they don't make any money because they have this amount of followers that have basically told them I'm subscribing to you because you're of interest to me because I'm interested in, in your lane, things you're an expert in. And I'm not trying to be disrespectful to them. But for me, I don't care if I ever get to 100,000 followers. I've been between 36 and, and 39,000 for a year because I quit proactively doing it because I want quality followers, subscribers that may have an interest in some of the products I'm bringing them that would pay for it so I can support my family. And the way that I captured those followers is by bringing meaningful content on a consistent basis and then letting them know where they can find me, getting them to my drjoshluke.com website. Uh, and if you want to dig deeper on social media growth, I'll give you one more tip. Engage in other people's yeah, um, oh, that is yeah, definitely okay. Yeah. That's where you really grow. And another one that my friend Ryan Miller, if you guys don't follow him on LinkedIn, follow Ryan Miller. Uh, he's a coach and a speaker that he shared with me that I found to be valuable. Is I'm a newspaper reader. Every day I read the newspaper, but nowadays I quit the paper version. I just read it on my phone or my pad. Um, but I'm, I'm I'm hungry for news, and so I've worked into my repertoire. Instead of my just daily newspaper, I go to LinkedIn and I type in four or five hashtags that are of interest to me: keynote, uh, healthcare, hospital. Those things are my lane. Post-acute readmissions. Those are what grew Josh Luke from the hospital C-suite to having a huge following. So those two engage in other people's comments, meaningful engagement, and then I'm um, searching hashtags of relevance to your awesome suggestions. But I want to get back to something you touched on. Justin, because it's awesome, specific to physicians that are in this weird time where they're not making a gazillion dollars like they were yeah. in the 80s and the 90s, and they're trying to figure out this marketing thing, and they're all on Twitter. And I, it, it's funny to me that physicians are on Twitter because having managed hospitals for all those years, uh, let's talk about doctors, short attention spans, big egos, hey, look at me, <laughs> um, uh, don't question me. And those are all things that are perfectly fit for Twitter, right? You, you just have two minutes, time management, right, to say something, but you think the whole world's listening, so you tweet it. And there's this huge um, population of physicians on Twitter, uh, but for the life of me, I only know a handful of people that get any true business value out of Twitter because they use it in a very narrow focus where they have groups like of reporters or of certain people that they tweet directly to and they engage very heavily with them. And if you have the time and bandwidth to do that, I would encourage that. But here's the aha light that just went on in my head when you asked that question, Justin. Physicians should be using Instagram and Facebook to grow their business. And, and I've learned this much more than Twitter or LinkedIn. I've learned this because when it comes to healthcare, as I go around the country and speak, I meet with the CEOs and the executives and I say, where are you getting most of your business? Uh, for post-acute providers, I've learned this too. Um, one of the top three answers is always social media, Facebook. And I'm like, wait a minute, just friends? They're like, no, friends of friends. They just want to know somebody who knows somebody who worked with yep. this organization. And it's more of a community, whereas LinkedIn's a global community. I mean, I, I have friends from Dubai that I actually did meet, but I corresponded with for a year on LinkedIn because they were such a great content provider. I learned so much from Actually, if you guys don't know Natalia Wachowski, she's from Dubai, speaker, awesome, awesome, very talented lady. I think the most talented person on the platform globally on LinkedIn, Natalia Wachowski. 
um, W-E-I, I think, Wachowski. But anyway, look her up. Um, she was the first to use the term edutainer. And I said, hey, since we're like on opposite ends of the earth, I'm just going to copy you on that. Is that okay? I'm going to call myself an edutainer because it's just perfect description of what I do. And when we were both invited to the Masters of LinkedIn event in Los Angeles last year to be speakers, um, she at first wasn't going to come. She hadn't heard much about it. And then I talked her into coming. And so my wife and I got to spend some time with her. And she's she's even better in person. But she is, if you really want to learn how to use this platform, follow Natalia Wachowski. Uh, she's awesome. Excellent. That's a great tip. We'll definitely connect with her. It's so funny that you said that because we obviously are with us being mainly focused in healthcare. We're focused a lot on which social platforms are going to be the best to reach new patients. And a lot of people in our space from a marketing agency standpoint kind of consider say Twitter a little bit of a falling star that it's lost a lot of the momentum over years. But on our end, obviously our focus is to get in front of a lot of providers and a lot of um, medical directors, those kind of things for, for what we're focused on from an agency. And we always tell people are like the one area that it's still on fire is physicians and Twitter. They're just, they love it. <laughs> it's so funny that you said that. Cause we always tell everybody, it's like, I wouldn't really recommend if you're trying to grow anything else, but if you're trying to reach doctors, they're there and they're active. <laughs> Except for your ego. If you're a doc, right? You want to build your ego, go to Twitter. If you want to build your business, think more locally. <laughs> I, I agree. That's so funny. Oh, the power of Twitter. Well, well and, and you know, I think the the one thing I'll say about social media, if you're willing to pay a little extra now, which I've dabbled in a little bit, um, they can target um, certain audiences. Um, for example, I think you guys are out of Atlanta. You could, if you're a physician in Atlanta, you could target, you know, executives with at least two children in this industry and you pay, you know, just a couple pennies for each message that gets into their LinkedIn inbox that they, and the only thing you only pay if they open it or something like that. Facebook has something similar. Insta, they're all trying to get you to pay now, but um, I found that that targeted marketing can be very effective um, for things like that. Absolutely. Definitely. And do you pull on, especially now that you've kind of gotten to where you are and getting, securing keynotes, focusing on kind of obviously getting, uh, press everything with your background that you mentioned on the sports side. Do you draw? Do you find yourself drawing from that over the years as you've kind of gone on this journey of the promotional marketing stuff that you used to do on the sports side? Do you find yourself kind of tapping into that when you're trying to grow your personal brand? You know, I, early on there was definitely that component until a couple of my mentors kind of said, "Hey, man." It's about time you stand on your own two feet and quit living off the fact that you flew on a private jet to New York with Mark McGuire, you know? And, and I appreciated that because it is a cool story that everybody loves, but there were times where it was taking up 15 or 20 minutes of my 60-minute presentation, and some people were like, I hey, get to the point. And so I do plenty of presentations now where that never comes up. Uh, it's just a fun story that any non-millennials can relate to, so it's, it's, they, they all lived it with me, you know? Um, but I think not so much the sports. What I what I struggle with nowadays is most of my requests still come in um, from healthcare executives that want to learn how to give value based care in a cost efficient way and make some money. And you know, the last few years I've started to get some on healthcare affordability, and now I'm I'm just into the create this corporate culture because the whistleblower things really opened some doors too. Which is you know my new keynote for this year is called for 2020 creating a culture of confidence, building trust to drive value. Uh, and those, uh, it's actually, you know, I, I've been flirting with different names and I think that's actually the last rendition of the name. Um, it, it's actually something that I stumbled upon as I ran this by other people, which is that there's this corporate epidemic 
country that everybody knows and nobody will speak of. And that is that the minute you're hired to add value to an organization, which is why you're hired, if you didn't know it, okay, no matter what type of organization it is, you're hired to be a team member that brings value, makes the company more valuable, right? But the minute you're hired to make those smart decisions to add value, a week later you're tasked with your first decision and what do you do? It's an American corporate epi epidemic. You take the high road, you take the safe road, you make the safe decision, you think job preservation, you don't stick your neck out and it's everywhere you look. And the more I climbed the executive ladder into the CEO role, the more I saw this. And I also learned that the longer an employee was with an organization, the more likely they never make a smart decision and always make safe decisions. And they'd prefer to make no decisions at all. So, so my, my new keynote for 2020 is called creating a culture of confidence, empowering smart decisions, not safe decisions. A two time whistleblower shares the four pillars of trust that lead to value, excuse me, that lead to value out of decision-making. So there's a whole um, four pillars that I've created just about building trust. And you know, guys, I'm not a huge Gary Vee fan. I'm, it's not that I'm not a fan. I just am like, okay, I think I've graduated to the next level here. But I saw a post pop into my feed a few weeks ago, and he was dead on and right. And he usually is dead on. I'm not saying I don't like him. I'm just saying, okay, enough of the motivational quotes that motivate millennials. I need to move on with my life here. Uh, he said, okay, uh, my number one job when I come in, into work every day is to make my employees feel safe. Hmm. And I was like, print it out, screenshot it. That's going in my presentation. Yeah. Empowering smart decisions, not safe decisions. Yeah, it's very true. Well, that's so. interesting. So kind of wrapping this up, I know that you do offer these keynote speaking opportunities. Where can they find you? How can they get connected um, to kind of learn more about this? And, and as you said, make those safe decisions. Yeah, thanks so much for asking. It's pretty easy. It's drjoshluke.com, D-R-J-O-S-H-L-U-K-E.com. If we're not already um, connected on LinkedIn, let's do that. You got to follow me. I think the button says follow now. I'm not allowed to connect. Um, but usually, <laughs> Which is a good I, problem I, to have. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I go through those follows and anybody who follows me, I go in and follow them back every week or so. Just to, It's just like being connected, right? So, right. But, but the funny thing too on that note is once you get to 30,000 connections, you have to have the email to even request a connection anymore. So they, they put an added layer up there, but, but yeah, come to drjoshluke.com, um, connect with me on LinkedIn, hit follow. If you are on Twitter, it's not that I don't use Twitter. I tweet every day. It's pretty much the same content I put on LinkedIn being tweeted over at Josh Luke for health. That's Josh Luke, the number four health. I have business pages on um, Insta and Facebook at health-wealth.com. So if you want to check out, excuse me, health-wealth on Facebook and Insta, but I think the easiest way to connect with me um, when you get to a stoplight, if you're driving or if you're sitting at your desk, just text the word Josh, J-O-S-H, to 72,000, and uh, you'll hear you'll hear from me periodically, and I'll drive you to drjoshluke.com to find out all those different things. And we'll make sure to include those links in the show notes so you guys can connect very easily. And of course, you guys definitely check out his website. It is full of free resources interesting topics and of course talking all about the healthcare industry as well as programs and certifications for you guys as well selling to hospitals and i think that's a really important sector as well so dr josh luke thank you so much for joining us today yes thank you it's been fun it's been awesome and thank you guys for all the work you're doing we appreciate it thank you for listening to today's latest episode of the patient convert podcast 
don't forget to subscribe and review on your favorite podcast platform. We are on Apple, iTunes, Google, Stitcher, and Spotify, or you can sign up to receive the latest episode via email. Just check it out on my agency website or my personal website. And if you are looking for more amazing healthcare marketing information or just to engage, check us out at entropy.com. And for any of my amazing physician liaisons out there interested in growing their physician referrals or learning the strategies that it takes to build highly engaged physician referral networks, check out my website, kellynot.com, where I have free webinars, free downloads, and of course, my online physician liaison training course, Physician Liaison University. And as always, I'm a huge believer in connecting, engaging, and supporting one another. And the best way we can do that is networking. And I always, always connect with you guys on social media. And one of my biggest social media platforms is LinkedIn. So feel free to connect with me there on LinkedIn or Instagram or Twitter at Kelly Knott. And thank you guys again for listening to the Patient Convert Podcast with your host, Kelly Knott. 